You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to this month's feature series, Focus on Medical Education. Health-related quality of life. Should we measure it? And how? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD special series, Exploring Health Education. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today is Dr. Melanie Calvert. Dr. Calvert is a research fellow at the University of Birmingham in Birmingham, England. She has worked with clinicians in industry and with academics in researching the role that quality of life plays in assessing patient outcomes and health policy decision-making. Today, we're going to be talking about health-related quality of life. Should we measure it and how? Dr. Calvert, Melanie, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Maybe before we get into our topic today, maybe you could share with us a little bit about your own scientific background and, and how you got interested in this particular area of research. Okay. Well, I've been working at the University of Birmingham for the last six or seven years on clinical trials and epidemiology. And my interest in quality of life really stemmed from cardiac resynchronization in heart failure trials. That is a, a pacemaker with an additional lead patients with advanced heart failure and in that trial I had the privileged opportunity to assess the quality of life of the patients with heart failure at the start of the trial so to find out more about the impact of heart failure on those patients and then later on we were able to assess how the device improved patients quality of life we were able to take it a step further and use the quality of life assessments as part of a measure of clinical effectiveness use in a cost-effectiveness analysis for healthcare reimbursement decisions, which was later used by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK, which, which makes reimbursement decisions for the UK. So for those of us that may not be very familiar with health-related quality of life and its measures, how, how would you define it and why is it important that we define it and that we measure it? Well, I think it's a very subjective measure. I think everyone will have their own personal perspective of it, which makes it quite difficult to measure. It's not a hard outcome like blood pressure, for example. But I think patients... Generally, people sort of appreciate that quality of life is important and however people define it, if if a disease or a treatment is impacting on the way people are able to perhaps do their daily activities, whether they'll be able to relate to their friends and family, whether they're in pain or anxious and things, that that is important to patients. And so I think it is hard to define, but it, it sort of encapsulates those sort of concepts. How you go about measuring it is a little more tricky. I mean, there are over 600 quality of life questionnaires available now. So it's quite, even choosing one is perhaps a difficult task in itself. But there are sort of various guidelines and, and help you can get in, in choosing the right measure for your particular study. You talked about your work with cardiac resynchronization and heart failure and how you measured quality of life with those patients. Was that an unusual thing to do at the time? And how were you received in attempting to make those measurements with your fellow clinicians? I think at that time it was just becoming a bit more routine in a trial setting at least to, to measure quality of life. Certainly disease-specific measures, so in our trial we use Minnesota Living with Heart Failure Questionnaire, for example, those were sort of widely accepted. The utility measures, which will give you basically a value between zero, which is dead, and one, which is full health, which you can use for cost-effective analysis, they were less widely used at that time, I think. But I think since reimbursement decisions are made now more widely based on quality-adjusted life years, 
the use of such measures like the EQ5D, the SF60, they've been more widely accepted really by clinicians as well. You mentioned there were a lot of different potential uh, instruments that could be used. When you're measuring quality of life, health-related quality of life in a patient, do you have them fill out a document? Do you do it verbally? Does the clinician fill out the document? How does that work typically? Typically, you would ask a patient to fill in a paper questionnaire and they'll be printed off and ideally you would ask them to go and fill it in before the trial starts and then at various predefined time points during a clinical trial. You would hopefully give them some space, some quiet time to fill it in on their own. Obviously in in reality that often doesn't happen. The patient's given the questionnaire in a busy clinic, lots of things are going on. But we would prefer the patient to complete it themselves because there is evidence that if the clinician completes it for the patient as a sort of proxy that you can get different results. And similarly, if you ask, say, a family member to complete it, again, you might get slightly different results. But I think if you've got patients with very advanced disease but you still want to capture their quality of life, that proxy may be appropriate in those sort of settings, but ideally the patient themselves. You've been around different projects where you've looked at these measures. Do you have a sense of the regularity with which they are used in day-to-day practice in your country? Do hospitals have policies that require it? Is it sort of optional? Is it well accepted? And how has that changed over the years, would you say? I think certainly in routine practice on the day-to-day primary or secondary care setting, these measures wouldn't be used. They're used by, as far as I know, one of the private healthcare companies for auditing purposes. So they'd be given a, patients would be given a quality of life questionnaire before an operation and post-operatively to look at how the quality of life has changed due to the operation, and it's used purely for auditing purposes. So that's sort of the routine care at the moment. Within trials, I think most trials now within the UK, if they were in chronic disease or palliative care setting, those sort of things would probably incorporate a quality of life measure and usually probably some form of utility measure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special series exploring health education on REACH MD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Melanie Calvert. We're talking about health-related quality of life measurements. Should we do the measurements, and how should we do it? So, Melanie, let's talk about measuring quality of life versus the more objective kinds of things, like a blood pressure or a pulse or a blood test. Obviously, it's very subjective, or it is subjective, but is there a way of feeling more comfortable with either interpatient readings or intrapatient readings? Are there methods so that you feel comfortable in the quality of the data you get? Is it dependent upon the person reviewing the questionnaire at all? No, I don't think it depends on the person reviewing the questionnaire because usually the questionnaires will have tick boxes saying, do you have problems with mobility, for example? And you, you would the patient would be asked to fill in a specific tick box relating to how they felt. So actually, when you get the data itself, you can analyze that appropriately. I think using questionnaires that have proven validity is a key thing. So, for example, there's a website that's available, which is called the ProQualid website. I think it's run by the MAPI Institute in France. And they have a list of all of the different questionnaires that are available. They also have information about whether the questionnaire has been tested for validity, whether it's reliable and reproducible. So if you did retest within the same patient several times, would you get the same result? Also, is it sensitive? So if a patient had a change in disease state, which the clinician would feel would alter their quality of life, is that picked up? Is is the instrument sensitive? So there are websites available that will describe the properties of the instrument. And also you need to consider whether if you're doing it in different populations, whether it's 
available in the appropriate language, whether it's culturally reliable, whether it's translated appropriately as well. So those are other additional considerations. You have been involved in teaching or designing uh, courses for uh, undergraduates in using these questionnaires or using techniques to measure uh, quality of life. What's been your impression as to the receptivity of, of medical students or clinicians in making this a part of what they do for a living? Are they very accepting of it? Are they resistant to it? What's, what's your sense nowadays? I think with medical students, so they initially I think they're a little unsure because they don't know that much about it. It's not really covered in their core curriculum, but as the course progresses, and, and we, we do focus a lot on trials, but we also consider whether it could be brought more into routine practice and I think a key point that I make is I would not regard quality of life as being the only important outcome. I personally feel it's, it is an important outcome, but it must complement other existing clinical measures, you know, mortality, morbidity, hospitalizations, things like blood pressure that you've mentioned. You know, it doesn't replace any of those measures. It's complementary to them. And I think if you look at it in that way, then people are more accepting. And also with sort of patient-centered approach that people are now tending to adopt more, that it fits well with that sort of philosophy. With clinicians, they tend to be interested more in the practicalities, I think, probably. And there's a lot of focus from the clinicians on the reimbursement side of it because they're very interested in that. And so they tend to be more interested in how you can get robust data to drive the health policy, really. So their interest is slightly different, but they are very receptive to it. And I think the reimbursement issues are, are probably key as well. When would undergraduate students typically be exposed to uh, these kinds of instruments or this this concept? Currently, we run a course at the University of Birmingham for second-year students. And we're also considering offering it for third-year students as well. So that's the medical students are offered this, but it's an optional course. So it's not part of the core curriculum at the moment. We also do quality of life courses within various master's courses at the university, so masters that relate to health, basically healthcare policy or primary care. Any of those sort of masters may have a, a small section on quality of life. Hmm. I'm surprised that you said it's, it's optional. Do you think it should be mandatory? It's difficult. I think I personally would like to see that in the future, and I think in the future it may well become, certainly even a small session would become or mandatory, but I think the pressures on the um, on the medical course are, are such that there's just so much information that they have to get in. These sorts of new concepts probably take time to phase in, really. You and your team wrote a paper on the need for education on health-related quality of life. Before that paper, had there been much research, had there been much in the literature on this topic, or were you sort of plowing new ground there? I think to a certain extent plowing new ground. As far as I'm aware, there's no in the UK, there's no other sort of quality of life courses there may be some in development and there may be some running now that I'm not aware of but at the time of initially writing the paper uh, there didn't seem to be anything obvious I think there have been discussions within the wider sort of science community that it's important for example I'm a member of the International Society for Quality of Life Research and also the International Society for Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research and both of those societies do recognise the importance of education on quality of life I know that they're keen to develop curriculum materials, to share materials. They're also looking to develop online courses for healthcare professionals and so on. So there is, I think there's a broader recognition that there is a need, whether for undergraduates it's widespread, I don't know at the moment. I think that gives us a good lay of the land, good overview and appropriate perspective for us to think about. My thanks to Dr. Melanie Calvert for being our guest. We've been talking about health-related quality of life, whether we should measure it and how we might go about doing that. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to a special series exploring health education on ReachMD, XM157. 
the channel for medical professionals. To comment or to listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you for listening. We thank you for listening to this month's feature series, Focus on Medical Education, exclusively on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Here is a sample of the great shows airing this week. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. Please join me on the next Lipid Luminations. My guest will be Dr. Robert A. Wild from Oklahoma University Health Sciences, and we'll be talking about metabolic syndrome, menopause, and polycystic ovarian disease. Please tune in. This is Dr. Leslie Lunt. Join me this week on our special series, Focus on Diabetes, where my guest will be certified diabetes educator, Jeannie Diaz. We will be discussing preventing diabetes. And I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. Join me this week. I'll be speaking with Jane Fowler with the HIV Wisdom for Older Women program in Kansas City, Missouri. And we'll be talking about HIV and our patients over 50. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157, where we change topics every 15 minutes. For our complete weekly guest and program guide, visit us at ReachMD.com.